short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome back to the Cold War, episode 244, continuing the story of Operation Ajax, the overthrow of the government of Iran by the CIA in 1953, picking up where we left off last time, which is talking about the concessions that the Shah of Iran in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was selling off to the British and the French, the Germans, the Austrians, uh, yes. for a whole variety of reasons, as we mentioned last time. What what do you have to say on all of that, Ray? Well, and you're right. What, you, what it is is he packages a lot of, of these together and he sells it to the British. He sells it to other people, but a lot of things go to the British. And then when it gets shut down, because literally the people – uh, the other European governments, and most importantly, let's be honest here, the other 1,599 wives who did not go along with this, maybe all of them did not, uh, he has to backpedal. What he's going to end up doing is like, okay, well, I still need the cash, so I'm going to do it more quietly. I'm going to do it in smaller concessions. So he still gets around to selling things away. And again, however it happens, the people find out, and people are just getting pissed all over again. Again, he I think a part of him was like, well, this is good for you because we're bringing in experts who can build railroads. We have no idea how to build a railroad, and I get cash out of it. It's a win-win. That is, up until the point where the people decide they can't take this anymore. So we talked about the Reuter concession in our Mm. last episode where he basically sold off everything (laughs) to this German-British guy, Reuter, uh, but had to cancel that when people both at home and also the Russians freaked out, complained. Yes, George Curzon, in his magnum opus, Persia and the Persian Question, written in 1892, had this to say. It was said at the time of the Reuter concession that one of the reasons for confiding powers so enormous to a single individual or to a single company was the desire of the Persian government to escape from the conflicting offers of a horde of foreign speculators who, ever since the opening of the Indo-European Telegraph in 1865, had settled down upon Persia and were clamouring for a share in the division of the spoils. Mm. For a time, the collapse of the Reuters scheme frightened away these harpies. But as confidence was re-established, and more especially when, under the friendly pressure of the British government, Mm -hmm. concessions such as those for the navigation of the Karun River and the Imperial Bank were granted, friendly pressure, (laughs) they began to reassemble. And on the return of the Shah from his last European journey, a crowd of these interested applicants descended like a flight of locusts upon Tehran. Wow. The air was full of rumours of concessions for the exclusive introduction or manufacture or growth of wine, sugar, glass, telephones, electric light, and in one instance for a monopoly of all agricultural produce. How are they supposed to modernise unless they start learning to do the stuff for themselves? How do you build a solid middle class that the government can then hopefully tax fairly and bring modernization to your country? I mean, this is all interconnected, but he's just skipping all of that. And again, he... And you get the feeling he could have maybe asked for more, but it seems, you know, certainly what he got paid co- compared to what the British or the Russians are going to make, 
night and day. I mean, they're they going to clean. If they do get a 50-year contract, they would clean up, which is why so many people in England have castles and the rest of us don't. Yeah, it's this classic thing uh, of you know Western um, capitalists using the threat of mm-hmm. uh, the the military resources of their country right. to go into weaker countries and say, "Give us all of your shit, or else yeah. uh, we're going to come in and fuck you up." But on the flip side, as I said last time, the Shah did realize that he needed to modernize his country quickly yeah. or they'd get left behind. Didn't feel, obviously, that they were capable of doing it themselves. They needed international help in doing that. So it's 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 pretty hard. If, you, if we're going to be fair about it, right. it's pretty hard to yeah. figure out what aspects of this were just corruption, him wanting to get paid, versus what aspects of this he thought were in the best interest of his country. Yeah. Uh, and also how much power he had in this anyway because of the potential threats of more wars with Russia and England. They'd already lost three in the last 50 years. Right. Um, could have been a lot more. And if I could real quick, just to give him some more where credit is credit due, he did to a degree reform the tax system. He did weaken the power of the clergy when and where he could. He did build military factories so he could have better weapons so they could defend themselves one day. And he did try to talk to other countries in Europe to try to reduce the influence of Britain. So he was, I I think it's one of those things where he was doing the best he could with what he had and he didn't have a lot. So it's easy to for him to come out to be the bad guy. He was doing what he could. He also established the first Iranian schools and and upper education, um, and he subdued several rebel groups. So again, he is trying, but this is probably the best he could do with the cards he was dealt with. Yeah, maybe. To a degree. But people were were unhappy uh, at home. The Russians were also unhappy when he started selling these new concessions to the British. But then, as you hinted at, I think in the last episode, he gave or sold the Russian merchants the exclusive right to their caviar fisheries. And they were happy. The, They're happy now. The raviar uh, uh, manufacturing <laughs> he saved for himself, but the caviar he sold off to the Russians. As you do. As you do, yeah. But basically the most valuable assets in the country are being handed over to foreigners yeah, and a lot of money that could have potentially been brought into the Iranian treasury um, wasn't. It, it went to foreign countries, and the the meanwhile the Shah is living like a Shah. Yeah, and people can see this whether yeah. they um, whether it's fair or not. They believe that the Shah was selling off these things to make himself rich. Uh, or continue to be rich, right. and he was living large while they right. were missing out. He also borrowed, this is the greatest deal, in order to pay for all of these things to get done, Right. Uh, you know, he had to borrow money from British and Russian banks. Not good. He was basically, yeah, taking out loans and then borrowing more money yeah. to pay off more loans uh, he was getting money from selling these things, but in, in a lot of cases, as you said with the Reuters concession, it was the deals were for percentages of future profits. Yeah, no cash now. And yeah, and a bit like Hollywood, they were like, "Well, there's no profit if you get points and profit in the film." Like, well, there's no profit. Yeah, because we 
we we spend it all right. on you know uh building our own harems so exactly sorry yeah we, we promised you 60 percent of the net profit but look it's no it's no money but it's no money ju- no profit just the death spiral here's a concession i won't see money for five or ten years I've got to borrow money. I've got to start paying interest on that. I can't afford it because I'm not getting money from the concessions. And so then I have to start giving things away to the banks. I mean, this is, they've got him by the short and curlies. They are squeezing this guy for tons of money. But that's what it means to be a major European power. You take from everyone else. Then in 1870 to 1872, there was the Great Persian Famine. Mm. Estimates of how many people died vary, but it roughly seems to have been around one and a half to two million people, Jesus. which was about 15 to 25% of the population of oh. Iran at the time. Yeah. Might as well have the plague. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was also happened on his watch. That's brutal. Right. Iran is sinking deeper and deeper into poverty and dependence and people are ready for change. Now, of course, this is a period of time where people around the world are looking for change. Mm-hmm. You've got, as we've talked about on various shows over the years, similar things are going on across the Ottoman Empire, things are going on in Russia. You know, there are the, the revolutions of the late 1700s, early 1800s in the United States, in in France. Right. People have sort of seen those happen and we're in this new period now where people are demanding more say over their governance, more control yeah. of their country. This is happening uh, across Europe uh, and across uh, Central Asia. There are articles, there are books, there are leaflets that are being written both at home and overseas that are being smuggled into the country, talking about democracy, talking about the the rights for people to have a say in how they live. Yeah. And this is having an effect in Iran as well. And if you go back to, and I think you mentioned this on the first episode, maybe you didn't use the exact term, but their concept of FAR, F-A-R-R, where we mentioned um, the rulers have the right to rule. Um, everybody should be obedient to them. On the other hand, the other co- side of that coin is they should be good rulers. They should be fair. They should you know, try to take care of the people. And clearly the people uh, uh, of uh, Persia are saying that that's not happening for hundreds of years. And now the Europeans are coming in and taking everything that we do have a value. So the other, the other part of that is that we have the right to revolt if uh, you're not doing your part. It's, it's a social contract, if you will. You're not being good leaders. We don't have to be loyal. And so a lot of people are starting to get pissy. And yeah, they're hearing about the French Revolution. They're hearing about what's going on in other countries. They're like, well, if they can do it, what's, so, what's magical? Why can't we do it? And so there is now discussion going on that the Shah would not want to happen. Now, you mentioned in the last episode about the tobacco mm. revolt, mm. Um, how he sold off the rights to the tobacco. I've got some more detail mm. on that. So in 1890, he sold the entire Iranian tobacco industry to some guy called Major Gerald F. Talbot. Good name. Now, he happened to be a close relative of the Prime Minister of England at the time. Coincidence. Robert Robert Arthur Talbot Gascoigne Cecil, the third Marquess of Salisbury, aka Lord Salisbury, for a he he got the he got a full monopoly 
for the production, sale, and export of tobacco for 50 years. Jesus. For an annual sum of 15,000 pounds, about 2.6 million US dollars today. Right. In addition to a quarter of the yearly profits after the payment of all expenses and a dividend of 5% on the capital. And that's where they get you. Oh, the costs just keep going yeah. up. Oh, man. Uh, I'd love to oh, get you more, but we lost the ship uh, and the pirates, and then, of course, they've sailed off the edge of the world because the world's flat. We had to build a new ship. Yeah. Oh, the costs are killing me, sire. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> now, quick note on Lord Salisbury. Yeah. He was the Prime Minister of England three times over 13 years. Right. He was sort of uh, part of the elite, obviously, yeah. uh, the landed aristocracy, and his credo, and I think we can all, we should all remember this, because I sort of hinted at this in the last episode. Um, when I was talking about reform, yes, you know, if 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 you're a, if you're a leader of a country, be it a democratic country or you're a king or a shah or an emperor or whatever, and, and you want to bring about reform, you're going to upset the elite yes. in some way, shape, or form because things are going to change. Yes. Lord Salisbury's motto was, whatever happens will be for the worse, and therefore it is in our interest that as little should happen as possible. He's not wrong if you're the establishment. Let's not do anything so we decrease the chances of anything changing. I like that. As a one percenter, I think that's a great motto. I'm going to get that tattooed on my chest or or back here at the lower back. I I haven't decided yet. It you know I you know uh, before I, I became the king of podcasting sure. Ray yeah. I, I worked in the IT industry yes your, your dark times in the right yeah it was very dark in the nineties uh, late nineties early two thousands I worked for Microsoft and one of my jobs at Microsoft one of my first jobs there was uh, I was partly involved in managing our relationship with Telstra who at the time was the only telecommunications company in Australia. It had been a government-run business right. for decades, st- slowly got privatised in Could the 90s. The yeah. But, yeah, <laughs> but they had built, with the support of Bill Gates, uh, had built this fibre-optic uh, network around Australia for delivering high-speed internet. Right. Sounds good. But then they never gave the people access to it. Is that important? <laughs> And I used to take the senior executives of Telstra out for dinner and um, I used to take them to the US to meet with Bill Gates and Microsoft and that kind of stuff. Cool. Execs. But one of the things I figured out over time was Mm. the reason they didn't want people to have access to the internet is like high high bandwidth internet is because they suspected that it would – be a threat to their existing business. Ah, they would cut their own throats. Okay. Which was telephony. And, you know, there was even this talk at the time of, well, maybe we can do voice calls over IP. You and I are having a video call now over the internet. We're not on a landline with an international call. Exactly. We're we're doing this essentially for free Mm -hmm. over our internet connection. They they could see that being a possibility. They go, well, that's going to negatively affect our revenues. So we don't know how that's going to play out. We may profit from that. We may not profit from that. So how about we just try and stop it from happening as long as possible? Since we don't know the outcome, why rush it? Yeah. I like that. Yes. I like that. Exactly. Okay. 
Cool. Which used to infuriate me because it was a government-owned business yeah. for most of its history, and particularly when they were rolling out the cable. So I, I used to say, so hold on, <laughs> taxpayers paid for you to roll out this high-speed cable, but now you're not letting us have access to the high-speed cable. To the benefits of They're it. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah pretty, yeah, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to capitalism. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Stupid. Motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> According to the Boston Globe in uh, on the 5th of April 1980, and I dug this edition of the paper up yeah. on newspapers.com, they were talking about Gerald Talbot, who got the tobacco concession. Mm. It said, Talbot acts on behalf of English capitalists. That's true. That's true. Probably the Prime Minister. Now, under the terms of the concession, right. every farmer who grew tobacco was required to then sell it to the British Imperial Tobacco Company. Monopoly. And every smoker had to buy it at a shop that was part of the British Imperial Tobacco Company's retail. Monopoly network. squared. Yeah, that's yeah. insane. That is that you're literally printing <clears throat> money. You it's the equivalent of printing money. Because because like we said, and even if we didn't really stress it, smoking is a huge part of their culture. Uh, it's no judgment, but it, but that is literally the license to print money. Not just smoking, but the the growing oh, and the manufacture right. the of tobacco process. was a huge industry. Good point. The whole process. Thousands yeah. and thousands of poor farmers yep. across the country grew tobacco on small plots of land. Going to get screwed. Which were then sold to this whole class of middlemen who cut it, dried it, packaged it, distributed it. It was an entire industry that now was going to be dominated by foreign power. By the way, the, the biggest market for Iranian tobacco then wasn't domestic either. It was international. They were selling it oh, overseas. Wow. It was okay. particularly in places like Turkey. It was highly prized, right. their tobacco. Um, so it was going to be taken away from the this whole thousands of, yeah. you know, workers in in Iran given to foreigners yeah. who would, would get a profit from it. So it was a great insult to the Iranian people on many different levels. And this yeah. whole coalition of Iranian intellectuals, uh, farmers, merchants, religious clerics came together to resist right. this whole initiative including, as you indicated in the last episode, one of the leading religious figures at the time, Sheikh Shirazi, mm. who got behind it, issued a fatwa, as you mentioned, etc. Yeah. Now, the, he issued a fatwa, as you mentioned in the last uh, episode, and mm -hmm. pretty much everyone had to obey it. Yeah. You don't fuck you know, with this, fatwas. This is – Yeah. And this had never happened before in right. Iran. Good point. A yes. religious leading religious cleric issued a fatwa that all Muslims were obliged to follow that went directly against something that the Shah had right. ordered. And it was really uh, a demonstration of religious power versus political power. Yeah. And Nazir al-Dan Shah was obviously frightened mm -hmm. uh, uh, by this, couldn't understand how his people could rise up against him because he was, you know, the, yeah. what was it? What, what were his, what were his titles again? Um, uh, uh, the, I like the climate. As Asylum of the universe, subduer of climate, <laughs> arbitrator of his people, guardian of he's the gonna, flock, conqueror of lands and shadow of God on earth. He's going to miss what's going on in the street 
if you know, because he's not leaving his palace. He's got his 1,600 concubines. How would he notice a, a change in the air on the street below? He wouldn't, but he's going to figure it out. Too late, I think, might be the way to put that. And then when his 1,600 wives, A, stopped smoking, B, on the week they all had their period, he <laughs> knew. Like, whoa, whoa. I think I might have fucked up. I might, I don't know. <laughs> Let me, I got to look into it. I got to get some uh, PowerPoint project, but I might have fucked up. Might have gone too far. And yet again, he is forced to cancel yes. the concession, like he had to cancel Reuters' succession earlier. But to make it even worse. Oh, God. He had to compensate yes. British Imperial Tobacco oh, they, for their loss. They're going to get day money. You know what I'm saying, son? Because they had a contract. Yes. He doesn't have the money no. to compensate them, so he has to borrow half a million pounds oh. from a British bank yes. in order to compensate British Imperial for its loss. Now... There was a huge debate about it in British Parliament right. um, at the time, just after all this went down, which I got a record of. Cool. Um, I found this in the Times, 27th of May, 1892, and I'm going to read it because I, firstly, I find it fascinating. Mm -hmm. So this is like um, uh, a transcript of, of, of debate going on in Parliament, right? Right. Mr. Labouchere called attention to the Tobacco Corporation concession in Persia. On the 8th of March, 1890, it appeared that the Shah of Persia granted a concession to a Mr. Talbot, who engaged to pay out of the profits of the concession £15,000 per annum to the government of the Shah and a quarter of all profits. He did not gather, however, that Mr. Talbot actually paid anything. Mm. On the 3rd of May, Mr. Talbot sold this concession to the Eastern Concessions Syndicate. In this instance, also, he did not gather what amount Mr. Talbot was paid for the concession, which he sold to the company, but he thought it was evident from the date that in all probability, Mr. Talbot and the Eastern Concession Syndicate were very much the same individual. Gasp. Shock. Right? On the 3rd of November, the Eastern Concession Syndicate sold the concession for which nothing had been paid, for £300,000 to the Tobacco Corporation of Persia. A portion of the money was paid in cash and a portion in shares, right. and on the same day on which this sale was made, a prospectus was issued asking the public to subscribe, the capital being £650,000. Mm. The prospectus was constructed in the usual manner, except that it appeared to him to be more exaggerated in its statements than it was usual for prospectuses to be. Right. Out of an undertaking whose capital was £650,000 and for which £300,000 had been given, a return was promised to those who took shares of £371,000 per annum <laughs> or over 100% above the capital really <laughs> expended. I love business. This is like a dot-com prospectus from the dot-com days. You We're going to make trillions of dollars. For a low low rate of $5, you soon will serve will be a millionaire. Don't ask me any details. It's magic. The Persian government found that the people of Persia were indignant at this concession, Duh. owing to the belief that its effect would be to raise the price of tobacco more than 100% yeah. to the consumer in Persia. They're fucked twice, right? 
Oh my in God. fact, the affair was to be a regie, and the, which is a monopoly, and mm-hmm. the price of tobacco must have been excessive if the corporation were to make out of an expenditure of £350,000 a profit of £371,000. When the people of Persia almost rebelled against this concession, right. the Shah reconsidered the matter and determined to abrogate it. Now came in the intervention of Her Majesty's government. Mm-mm. What had occurred in Persia, the House did not exactly know. The papers had not as yet been presented to Parliament, but by means of questions he had elicited the fact that the Persian government had been advised by Her Majesty's government to pay a sum of £500,000 to the Tobacco Corporation in consideration of having abrogated the contract. Had the government looked into the contracts of this remarkable company or estimated the value of its property? Had they considered what portion of the £350,000 had been bona fide extended in giving effect to the concession? Mm -hmm. He gathered that the government had done nothing of the kind. Sounds right. The corporation asked for £650,000 and then said they would be satisfied with £500,000 and Her Majesty's representative at Tehran used his good offices and advised the Shah to pay the £500,000. Now, I like it when good offices now, leads to 500,000 pounds. Go ahead. Let me remind everybody that Major Talbot, aka the Tobacco Corporation, right, is a very close relative of the Prime Minister of England who is sending his representative in Tehran to go to the Shah and say, "Look, you need to kick yeah. up 500,000 pounds." And it looks like Talbot has paid nothing for this concession. Right. It's just, it's a 500,000 pound profit payday. Yes. Now, let me ask uh, my good friend ChatGPT. Right. How much would 500,000 pounds, British pounds, Mm -hmm. in 18. 90 be worth in USD today. Church EPT is says, uh, well, it's giving me its calculation process here. That's it, yeah. Um, bloody, 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 blah. It's going on, it's going into a lot of detail. Just, just give me the number. Just, there you go. Disappoint me. Um, let's say it would uh, 500,000. 500,000 pounds in 1890, according to, in 2013, which is the best I'm going to get. <laughs> um, here we go. 500,000 pounds would be worth 82.2 million thousand pounds today. Wow. Uh, okay, so let's go convert to USD. Well, in Australian dollars, okay, mm-hmm. that would be worth about um, 159 million Australian dollars, right? Um, so, United States dollars, 140 million, 100, 104, 105 okay. million US dollars. Not, so, not a not bad, bad. <laughs> not a bad profit from having spent nothing. Just talking to people. Just a little bit of travel and talking now, to people. Yeah. 
The Times goes on. Honourable members knew what using good offices with an Eastern ruler was and that the pressure put upon the Shah in this matter was so great that he was almost forced to resort to the Russian government for the money. Oh, shit. So far as he could make out, the corporation had only expended £150,000 in Persia, although they had expended a great deal in salaries and they could only show assets in Persia worth less than £100,000. Okay, so they had outlaid a little bit of money. Right. Between these sums, there was an enormous margin. The Shah, who would have to pay £500,000, would receive buildings and tobacco which the corporation itself suggested were worth £100,000 and Mm. had probably belonged to the Shah a year earlier. (laughs) He appealed to the committee whether, under these circumstances, it was proper for Her Majesty's government to interfere. Lord Rosebery had written a dispatch to Her Majesty's representatives abroad telling them that they ought to be exceptionally careful in taking up concessions of this kind and obtaining money from foreign governments. He thought that the persons who got a concession from a foreign government should be left to negotiate with that government. But even assuming it was desirable that these speculators should receive the support of the government, it did seem extraordinary that Her Majesty's government, with the prospectus of the corporation before them, should have asked and pressed the Persian government to give the sum of £500,000. He supposed the Persian government would not be able to borrow the money under 5% so that a charge would be imposed not merely upon the Shah but upon the unfortunate people of Persia of £25,000 per annum for the benefit of persons who had not spent in Persia one half the amount of the money paid to them and who would divide the profits or spoil among themselves, he thought most honourable members would think he was thoroughly justified in calling attention to this matter. Or another way now, yeah, yeah, go ahead. That was just the first of a long debate recorded by the Times. Right. They go on to say that Talbot and his brother, Major A.C. Talbot, who was a senior official senior official at the time in India, were close family connections of Lord Salisbury, and then they say, in quote, which made the matter very much easier to manage. Jesus. So, so they're making money for every step of the way. We get the concession. You have to turn down the concession. you got to borrow money from us. I mean, this is brilliant. No wonder Britain controlled one-fourth of the world at one point. This is utterly brilliant, and they did this all over the place. When you have capitalism backed by a powerful navy and a powerful army, you're going to make some money. I think history shows that. And, of course, the Shah is powerless to do almost anything against this. They also said that Persia was practically dependent on Britain at the time. And here's a little bit more from the Times. Mm. On the contrary, the case appeared to have become graver and graver as the debate proceeded. The case was that two brothers alleged to be officers of the Queen, holding high positions in the diplomatic service, hailing from Hatfield, alleged to be relations of the Prime Minister, stated in the course of the debate to be so, and the truth of that statement not being denied, obtained a concession from the government of Persia, and upon what terms? Talk about company-mongering. Why, upon a capital of £650,000, there was to be a profit of £558,000 per annum, or something like 80%, out of which Persia was to receive some £16,000 a year. And to get out of this wretched concession, the unhappy Persians were now called upon to pay a sum of £543,000, which would all be net profit to the corporation. 
honourable members would have to go back to the old days of the jobbery of the East India Company to find anything more atrocious than this transaction. The result was that the Persian government, utterly unable to force this concession upon the people, because even in a country like Persia there was something like a public opinion, had offered to pay a sum of £300,000 to buy out these robbers, but the offer was refused. And why? Because the robbers had got the English Foreign Office at their backs. Yes. The English Foreign Office did not say to these robbers, take the £300,000, which is double what you have expended, take your plunder and go. Right. But because these gentlemen were who they were, English diplomacy was set to work in their favour and the Persian government were forced to yield. In his opinion, the explanation of the Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs cast a slur upon English honesty and upon English diplomacy, and the matter ought to be sifted to the bottom. The government were bound to produce the papers on the subject at once, and the fullest explanation must be given of the whole transaction before and not after the settlement was concluded. He understood the Honourable Gentleman to say that the matter was not completed, And if there was any truth in the statements made, every impartial man must come to the conclusion that it was absolutely necessary for the honour of England and of English statesmen that they ought to wait for a full explanation until the papers had been obtained. Mr Morton said it was obvious that the matter could not be allowed to rest where it was at that moment because it had been proved, as far as such things could be proved, that the influence and power of the British government had been unduly exerted to induce the Persian government to advance a very large sum of money to a private corporation. It had also been stated that some of the persons concerned in the affair were not only officers of the Queen, but were relations of the Prime Minister, and he wished to ask the Undersecretary to state directly whether there was any truth in that assertion or not. Another reason why he thought the matter should be sifted to the bottom was that they should do all they could to prevent mischievous consequences following from it in future, though through the bad feeling that would no doubt be created in Persia. The whole affair was unfortunate for Persia because it had brought the Russian government into the matter in some way. It had even been suggested that the Russian government were asked to find the money, although they were now told that the Persian banks were to do so. But the banks would not find the money without security, and he doubted whether, after all, it would not be British money that would be spent to meet the demand. He hoped the committee would take care if the statements which had been made were true, that the power and influence of this country were not in any way used to benefit those shareholders or company mongers. He trusted under the circumstances that the promised papers would be forthcoming in an early date. Mr Hunter thought the matter had taken a very serious aspect and he ventured to say in presence of the facts that had been placed before the committee that before another step was taken in question by the government whose honour appeared to be involved, there should be a special and searching inquiry before a committee of the House as to the nature of the concession, as to the circumstances under which and the consideration for which it was granted and as to the position of the Persian people in the affair. Anyway, goes on and on and on and on. Jesus. Does this remind you of anything? Yeah, to me, well, actually, when you were reading it, I, I was thinking of two people, Gaius Marius and Julius Caesar. When Gaius Marius first became consul, one of seven times, he wants you to know that, he was like, look, senators, we cannot keep going to our various colonies 
raping the land, doing whatever we want because they'll eventually revolt and then we'll have to spend even more money putting them down and then they'll be poor because we've killed a lot of them and so we can't get a lot of taxes. They didn't listen to him. Caesar comes along and he starts suing former governors. He's like, look, you can't go there and just rob the place blind because then they're going to come back and they're going to uh, they're, they're going to take you to court and even though they might lose, that's just another reason for them to be pissed. So it's it's a light touch. And, and Heather does that to me all the time. She's a very good master. A light touch on the subjects. But again, that that's that's what I think of when I hear this. It's like you're, you're, you've got a good thing going. It's like a Ponzi scheme on acid. Don't take it too far and wreck it for everybody. Because what if Iran was to rise up? Yeah, you could beat them, but it would be war and war costs money. It reminded me of two different people. It right. reminded me of Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. <laughs> right. <laughs> I figured I'd be safe by mentioning something, you know, a couple thousand go- years ago. But your point is taken. Yes. Using the power of your relative to extort money out of uh, mm-hmm. countries. It's good business. Uh, yeah. So... Yeah, look, I mean, it, what's interesting about all of that stuff that I read out mm-hmm. is Somebody that noticed. Yeah, sorry. People in Britain at the time, yeah, the opposition party, yes. were calling this out as corrupt bullshit, Yeah, uh, which, you know, you don't see happen a lot these days. Right. Um, you know, they were they were calling this out for what it was at the time, just exploitation with the with – the, support of the inferred threat of the British government to support the interests of a private corporation. I thought that was a fascinating bit of transparency that we don't often get to see in real time. Exactly. Yeah, capitalists and government officials working in harmony to rip off the locals. Yeah, bad form. But that is happening with the Hunter Biden thing in the US today. There are these, you know, hearings Right. Uh, trying to get to the bottom of what Hunter Biden was promising and to who and how much Joe Biden knew about it. And the evidence seems to be that Joe Biden not only knew about it, but that Hunter would get him on the phone yes. with these people say to hi, say sort hi, of Dad. throw his weight around. Yeah, I, yeah. I did see that, yeah. You want, yeah. you want to say hi to the president or the vice president? I can get him on the phone. Hey, Dad, yeah, say hi to my friend, my new Friend. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Not only the vice president at the time, but also the guy who was in, sort of put in charge of Ukraine yes. by Obama. Yes. And was, you know, uh, bragging later on about how he was getting <laughs> prosecutors fired by withholding money and all that kind of stuff. Like it's just dirty, dirty shit. Yeah. It seems to be on the surface of it anyway. Yeah. So this revolt against the Shah showed the Persians that they could fight back with the fatwa and the people protesting, yes. forcing the Shah to change his decision. Um, it For the second time now, the Reuters concession and now the mm-hmm. Talbot tobacco concession, all of a sudden the people of Iran are like, oh, oh. When the farmer talks to the intellectual and they agree and they get the cleric involved, that's the society right there. If you can all unite and not fight each other and get together and agree on something, that is a powerful force that the Shah is unable to defy. Not to mention his 1600 wives. That too. Yes. that You know what? I probably should have led with that. that that's what pushed it over the line. Yeah, 1,600 women. How do you get 1,600 wives in the first place? Uh, step, so you put out like a casting yeah. call 
Do you put out like an ad in the paper and you have like yeah. 20,000 come in right. and they all audition or do you have ooh, a team ooh. of guys I th- like, yeah. you know what I like. Look, Ray, you know what I like. <laughs> Can you just go out yes. and just bring me right. bring me, bring me women basically? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't want to see what's the, the same deal? woman for two years. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Like how do you like? Uh, so let's say I, I hired you. I gave right. you the job. Right. Commissioned you to go and find me women. Sure. Sure. So like this, you know, and I want a bit of variety. You yeah. know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's, in one, in one I gotta, Yeah. I gotta. Uh, I gotta. I gotta get the lyrics of Ninety Nine Problems for Ice Cube. Like back in the good old days. Right. We'd just be able to play, play music. this, but we, yeah. yeah, we can't need. No. Yeah. So I'm gonna have to. I'm going to have to recite it myself. Parody. So it's a parody. for people who don't know their classic rap, right. you probably know Jay-Z's 99 Problems. This is the original 99 Problems by right. Ice Cube. Yeah. Yeah. I got a hole from the east, got a hole from the west, got a hole like to jack it off and rub it in a chest. Got a hole from the north, a hole from the south, a hole that likes to suck it long and hold it in her mouth. I got a bitch with hair, a bitch with none, a bitch with a knife, a bitch with a gun. I got a bitch with a house big as a TV set. There's a bitch over there who one I'm gonna get. But yo, maybe not. She might like she might not like me though. No sweat to a vet. I slip my sister though. Word ice in the whole damn herd. I fuck them all and leave them on the curb. I got a bitch with a mink who rocks a fat gold link who likes to fuck me with the ass up on the kitchen sink. I got a bitch with tits, a bitch with ass, a bitch with none, but hey, I give her a pass. I love them all. I love them crazily oh. and they love me back. That's why they stay with me. So if you have a girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. I got a bitch that's old, a bitch that's new. Got a bitch who love velvet in the colors blue. I got a bitch who's fat, a bitch who's built, a bitch who all her titties give out powdered milk. I got a bitch who's funny, a bitch who ain't, a bitch who can sing, and a bitch who can't. A bitch who loves fucking on an airplane. I even got a bitch off of Soul Train. I got a bitch who rolls a ragtop bends, long ends. I got a bitch who's broke as a bum, but she's the most fun. I got a bitch who play piano, a bitch who don't, a bitch who dances naked and a bitch who won't. I got a bitch who's short, a bitch who's tall, a bitch who burns my pager with priority calls. And I love them all. I love them crazily. And they love me back. That's why they stay with me. So if you have a girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems and a bitch So given that those are your parameters, I don't think I'm going to have any trouble collecting 1,600 women. I think you pretty much just opened up the gates for me. Uh, And thank you for making my job uh, easy. So I give you this job. I say, look, I want variety. Right. Variety is the spice of life. Yes. So you go out. You're on a mission. Yeah. You you, you see a girl. Yeah. A a, a young lady. in the In the bazaar. Right. You walk up to her. What do you say? Uh, I'm about to make all your dreams come true. No, what I say is, I, I mean, I have my standard questions, you know, can you, can you belly dance? You know, uh, can you pill a grape? You know, the standard stuff, but I'm not going to lie to you. Um, even though you paid me a flat commission, I hired them the way you fuck them. The first 200, 250, I was sincere. I scanned them. And then I just started grabbing bitches and throw them in the back of the camel. And, you know, I, I didn't even look. Uh, someone probably had mustaches and I just threw them in there. But you didn't notice. You never complained. So, Kesarasara. <laughs> and you know, I only want virgins right. for obvious reasons. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. how do you make sure they're all virgins? Oh, I guess they're oh, just. That, 
I went unmarried. Uh, well, to be honest, I went. I just went to the baby ward and took them and fed them for you know. 12, 13, 13 and a half years, and right, then presented right, right. them. And grow with- your own. That's smart. <laughs> grow your own virgins. He had a virgin farm, <laughs> a wife farm. He's just growing wives oh in a lab. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not, I wouldn't want 1600. Idea. Between you and me, 1600? No. A little much. Fuck. A little much. I can't even handle one at a time. You know, it's like. <laughs> and I got to pay for them. You know, again. Yeah, no. I'm not a Shah. If I had a Shah, if I was I a Shah. I don't have a Shah's mentality. That's what it is. No, no, no. We should start a new uh, thing you are called. A midget. Yeah, well, that's a different so, mentality. We look no, up at everybody. A Shah looks down on everybody. No, we should uh, ask the Shah. Like, if you have a question, it's like ask a ninja, ask a Shah. You'll get a different mindset. Uh, ask a ninja. Ask a ninja. I just brought him up the other day. I was like, my auto boys, Hunter Teller. Like, you, you ever heard of Ask a Ninja? They're like, no, who the fuck's that? <laughs> Never mind. He was yeah. the man. He was the first YouTube star. Oh, Ask really? a Ninja. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. I just love the well, answer. One of the first YouTube stars. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ask a Ninja. <laughs> I wonder what he's up to these days. He was legendary. Retired, hopefully. Oops. All right. So yes. things are changing in Iran. And, you know, after all of this, when uh, the, the Shah just gave up, like he yeah. just got, you know, like, fuck, fuck all y'all. He did a Tiberius. It's, it's like, fuck all it. y'all. Exactly. I'm out. I'm just, I'm yeah. just going to go and fuck my bitches. Exactly. And he was shot to death in 1896 yes. while visiting a mosque near Tehran. Now, this is a good story. Right. Kind of. He was killed by a guy called Mirza Reza Kamani, mm-hmm. who was a follower of an Islamic scholar and political activist, Jamal al-Din al-Afghani or Isfahani, right. depending on which source you use. Sure. This guy was basically the bin Laden of his day. He right. was an Islamic scholar and political activist who was telling people that they needed to rise up against corruption, particularly yes. against Western imperialism. Yeah. And domination of Islam and particularly of Iran, obviously, where he was from. Right. I think I've read something like he's like, you know, the little details that we're finding about when it comes to religion. How about here's an idea. Let's put the little tiny details aside. We can fight about those later. But if we can unite, it's going to take us uniting together to take on the West to get rid of this influence. So, again, pretty good idea. But people aren't willing to give up their little uh, pockets of power. And so I don't think that was going to go very far. But who knows? Yeah, he was appealing for Islamic unity. He was particularly pissed off about British domination of places yes. like Iran and India. Yes. He ended up getting exiled from Iran by the Shah for being a bit of a troublemaker, and he ended up in Istanbul. Mm. And then after he was exiled, his follower, Kermani, began to openly and publicly criticise Qajarian officials, including the Shah. right. He gets imprisoned. His wife divorces him. His son gets made into a servant. Oh, he got nothing to lose, do he? Well, no. He finally gets released from prison right. around 1895, goes to visit uh, Jamal al-Din in Istanbul, and mm-hmm. they plan the assassination of the Shah. Yeah. And then he, uh, interestingly, he reported to have said later on that he had a chance to kill the Shah before he actually did it. Right. But I didn't because the Jews were celebrating their picnic after the eighth day of Passover, and I did not want the Jews to be accused of killing the Shah. That's nice of him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I went for the other shoe drop, but okay. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he killed the shark, but you know, he was like, <laughs> I don't want to do it. Uh, I don't want near them a holy get, day exactly for the Jewish because I don't want I don't enough. want to ruin their. They got enough on their yeah. plate. Let's be honest. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'll wait. And that's just to remind people that. Uh, the, Islam and Judaism actually got along pretty well yeah. for the vast majority of the history of Islam since the you know six hundreds yeah. and seven hundreds dietary um, similarities and yeah they live in the same fucking yeah. place so they yeah. worked they, work and they that were out. yeah when the Jews were getting oppressed uh, we talked about this a lot on our Renaissance show when mm -hmm. we did you know a lot of episodes of the the, the pogroms and we've talked about the um, we talked about Israel on the Bullshit Filter show, the right. creation of Israel. Oh, we talked about it on this show too, actually. Um, you know, the Jews, when they were getting oppressed in all the Christian countries, they would often end up in Islamic countries where they were looked after, you know, relatively well. Yeah. Um, Just don't cause so anyway, trouble. Yeah. yeah. Um, he ended up, as I said, assassinating the Shah at at a at a mosque. Yeah. Um, apparently, the revolver that he used to assassinate him was old and rusty. Right. And it's been said that if the Shah was wearing a thicker overcoat or had been shot from a longer range, oh. he would have survived. God's will. God's will. Anyway, apparently, after he gets shot, the Shah apparently said, "I will rule you differently if I survive." Yes. I promise, <laughs> but he. Didn't survive. No, yeah. May first, eighteen ninety six. Um, he gets shot, and just to let everybody know, of course, he leaves this country in massive debt, a lot of foreign control, and there is mass unemployment. So things aren't any better just because he's dead. Kamani tries to escape towards the border of the Ottoman Empire. Right. Nasar's successor, Mozaffa al Din Shah, sent a detachment of troops on camel. Sure. Camel to catch patrol. him, he was caught at the border and um, interrogated for several months and to try and find out who his accomplices were. Right. And he, he was hanged in public on August 10th, 1896. Got to make an example. So, yeah, his um, son, Musavar, takes over. The people don't really mourn the Shah. He you, left behind a country that was yeah. dominated by foreigners, yes. widespread unemployment, inflation, yeah, food fucking, shortages. Right. Now, the, his his son, Musavar, age 43 at the time, mm -hmm. wasn't an improvement, spent <laughs> 35 years as crown prince, a um, bit like, King Charles, yeah, you know, he'd done nothing his entire life. Yeah. Had just been living a life of luxury, and I'm ready to do more nothing. And that's what he did. He enjoyed himself. He had a good time on the Peacock Throne, Peacock Tour, if you will. And he didn't get along with his father, who just is a bit like a succession situation right. here. His father just saw him as a bit of a waste of space. So he hadn't been trained in the ways of power. He hadn't been part of the decision-making processes. Nope. Not that there were many to really <laughs> give a shit about. Right. Uh, it's just, what have I got to sell? Yes, um, exactly. So the country was already a mess when he took over, and it just got worse from there on in. So yeah. 1896, it just continues to get worse. As soon as he, he um, ascends to the throne, he goes on a lavish European tour. Sure. Paid for with money borrowed from a Russian bank. Because that's good news. When he gets no. back, he has yeah. to take out another loan to pay off the British <laughs> loans. Christ. He's taking out loans to pay off loans yes. to pay off loans to pay off loans. And it's just going yeah. from bad to worse in Iran. 
People start denouncing him in public because they've got a taste of this now. Yeah, no. And his response to that isn't to change his ways, it's to arrest the protesters, the agitators. Yes. Anti-government riots break out across Tehran and in other cities. It's all going to hell in a (laughs) handbasket. And then in 1901, to make things worse. He's got a plan. He decides he's he's, he's, He's got a plan. To raise some more cash, he's going to. Sell off more things. Oh my God. Look, all I'm going to do is just one thing, I promise. I'm going to sell off. Uh, it's going to be a special and exec, uh, inclusive, excuse me, a special and exclusive privilege to obtain, exploit, develop, render suitable for trade, carry away, and sell all the natural gas petroleum for the next 60 years. Uh, it's a deal. It's, it's, it's a steal. For him, he's going to make a ton of money. So this Darcy, if you will, is supposedly going to control their petroleum for the next 60 years. Another stupid decision, another stupid concession by a weak and an ineffectual leader. But who's violent? So, you know, he'll be around for, like you said, 30, 35 years. So he sold this oil concession to William Knox Darcy, a London-based financier. Oh, thank you. Now, here's another one for my fellow Queenslanders. I mentioned in, the, I think, the last episode that uh, one of Reuters' daughters ended up moving to Australia and was married to the governor of Queensland. Well, William Knox Darcy was born in England but moved to Queensland when he was 17 with his family. His father was a solicitor who went bankrupt and they mm-hmm. had to move to the colonies. Wow. They moved to a, a, t- a small town then and not that much bigger now in northern Queensland called Rockhampton. Right. Can you guess what Australians call Rockhampton, Ray? Rocky Hamp? No. What, what? What do you call it? Yeah, first bit of it's right. Just Rocky. Just Rocky. Just first cut, cut off the second. Rocky. It, Australia is like the is French. You just cut off the second half of the word. Fuck it. Don't need it. It's a waste of space anyway. That's yeah, right. Rocky. Too long. Too too long. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have time. We don't have time to say the full word. Just Rocky. Rocky. Yeah. So. But moved to Rocky when he was 17. Ended up marrying the daughter of an American living in Rocky. Right. And he ran a gold mining business eventually in Rocky with a guy called Walter Hall. Now, Aussies yeah. will be familiar with the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research based in Melbourne, Australia's oldest medical research institute. Wow. So they made do a money. lot of yeah. cancer research. Good for them. Um, yeah, they made a shit ton of money, um, <laughs> right. Darcy and Walter Hall. Got, a, got rich out of a gold mine near Rockhampton. Uh, he moved, Darcy moved back to England in 1889. In 1900, he agreed to fund a search for oil and minerals in Persia. Right. Although he never actually went there himself. No, that's for commoners, right? So he began negotiations with the Shah, Musafa, in 1901. Mm-hmm. And they offered 20,000 pounds, about 2 million pounds today, for a 60-year concession to explore for oil, covering 480,000 square miles. Jesus. And stip- which stipulated that he would have the oil rights for the entire country except for five provinces in northern Iran. In exchange, the Iranian government was given 16% of the oil company's annual profits. Ah, Gotcha. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. And this agreement 
remained in effect until the Iranian Revolution in 1979, yeah. which is longer than 60 years, if you can work that out, because it got extended at some right. point. He sent a guy to Iran to start exploration in 1902, mm. but 1908 they'd found nothing and had run out of money. Right. Darcy nearly went bankrupt, had to bring in other investors, in 1908, he sends his guy in Iran a telegram saying, fire all the staff, shut down everything, right. pack it up, go home, we've got no money, sorry, like, we failed, we fucked yeah. up, you fucked up, we you should have discovered something by now, Right. go home. Like go The there. guy ignored him. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. And discovered oil. Uh, I was going to say, like a lot like uh, Governor DeSantis, look, we tried, we spent a lot of money, nothing came of it, let's just go home. But yeah, so they, they stuck around and they figured it out. Uh, so obviously, and, and we should probably make this clear, but you've probably figured it out by now, as much as Iranians, justly so, hate Americans, that's nothing compared to how much they hate the British. And now you got a sense why. We screwed them over for a couple of decades. Uh, the British did it for at least a century, so if not actually a little longer. So uh, they really, really, really hate the British, which will come back into this story later on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so in April 1909, Darcy was appointed as director of the newly founded Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Yay! These days known as BP, British right. Petroleum. Right. But they weren't finished there. Mm. Uh, APOC, uh, a couple of years later, also got a concession from the Ottoman Empire to explore for oil in their Tories, oh. which after World War I became Turkey and Iraq. And they discovered oil there as well. Now, we've talked about on earlier episodes why oil was becoming really important at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was this battle for who had control of uh, petroleum, oil, gas, those sorts of things. Yeah. And this this deal to, to hand over all of the oil, more or less, in Iran pretty much shaped all of... Iran's history yes. in the last 120-odd years yeah. shaped a lot of U.S. history as well. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a this was a big deal that no one could have foreseen the, uh, the, the the what this would make happen over the next hundred or so years. Yeah, uh, if I could, one of some of the reactions to this. Obviously, the people are pissed. Um, secret societies begin to form. And like you were saying earlier, there's more discussions of people going, hey, look at the French Revolution. Look at these other revolutions. If they can do it, you know, maybe we can do it. And what really hurts uh, Britain at this point, or what really helps the uh, the Persians at this point, is they, they start getting information from stuff that's going on around the world. Oh, the British aren't impossible to beat. Look what the Boers are doing to them in South Africa. Oh, the Russians aren't hard to beat. They just lost literally lost two fleets to the Japanese who've only been at this since the 1850s, so they can be beat. And Nicholas, uh, Tsar Nicholas II had to accept a parliament after getting his ass handed to him. So this is possible to stand up to these people, to defeat them, to get our rights, to get our quality, to have our own dominance over our own resources. We just have to figure out how to do it. But again, the Shah keeps pushing and pushing and pushing these people. They have nothing to lose at this point. 
Yeah, and the Iranians, are, you know, their, their political consciousness had just grown and grown in the last few decades. Yes, this exactly. belief that God required leaders to rule justly yeah, uh, and their ability to take control of their own destiny is growing. Books about the French Revolution are being translated and passed around. Um, it's all starting to build up. And then in December 1905... <laughs> right. The Shah, or his, his ministers, try and um, do something to, to pacify the people. Right. People are, are complaining about how expensive sugar is. Yes. Uh, and he has arrested several sugar merchants, mm -hmm. uh, leading sugar merchants in, right. in the bazaar. They're arrested, uh, accused of cornering the sugar market and hiking up prices. Right. And they are subjected to a form of torture in public known as the bastinado. Right. A favourite punishment of the Qajars, but also, um, you know, very popular all around the world. Is where Jesus. you tie yeah. somebody up in public, hang by their wrists. Sure. And whip them on the soles of their feet. Jesus. I mean, that's just excruciating pain literally from head to toe. Got to remember that the next time Fox pisses me off. Um, <laughs> Give me some wire. Yes, yeah. So so these now these... Yeah, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. So the people see what's going on, and maybe they're mad at the, the merchants, sugar merchants, who not, but clearly this is stepping over the bounds. The people in the bazaar freak out. They demand that the local government, the local governor be arrested, but they can see that there's a lot of people pissed off. Their numbers are growing, and I think that inspired them to want more than just to have the local governor removed and maybe have the uh, the price of sugar regulated. They decided they want more. They literally want to be feeded, treated fairly, and one of the most important things to them, like everyone else, is their pocketbook. They want a fair tax system in place. And you can imagine the, everything we've been describing for the last two hours. These people are being gouged for decades because the Shah owes foreigners tons of money. Now, these sugar merchants that get tortured mm -hmm. are actually quite reputable merchants uh -huh. and the whole thing backfires against right. the Shah. Uh, there's riots and the rioters start by demanding the dismissal of the local governor who had ordered the beatings and then they start uh, demanding reduced taxes. Yeah, more. And a, a lot of this is being directed by Jamal al-Din, the guy whose follower assassinated the last Shah. Right. He's still in exile, but he's writing pamphlets that are being smuggled and distributed around Iran, mm -hmm. calling for the people to rise up against these corrupt uh, administrators and against right. the Shah. And finally, they add this new demand. In order to carry out reforms in all affairs, it is necessary to establish a national consultative assembly to ensure that the law is executed equally in all parts of Iran so that there can be no difference between high and low and all may obtain redress from their grievances. Huh. So they're basically calling for a national parliament. Right. and. The Shah Musavar al-Din uh, basically is pushed into a corner. The people are rising up and he accepts in, in theory that right. the people should have a parliament. Yes. But then he does nothing about it. He stalls, he stalls and months go by yeah. and nothing happens. People get pissed again. 
because they waited, they expected. In the summer of 1906, they are now marching in the street. People are starting to organize. But you know that the government's going to send people after you to pistol whip you or to whip the soles of your feet. I don't know, whatever the current thing is. So they need a safe place to go. Oh, have we mentioned how powerful and influential the British have been over the last couple of decades? The British legation, the territory that they have, is roughly 16 city blocks. And so because that's British territory, a lot of these people go and run and hide there where they can't be got at by the Shah's men. And then a lot more people go into the British legation. And soon there are thousands of people there trying to, one, be safe, two, create enough time and safe space so they can try to figure out how to take on the Shah and his government. This is in the summer of 1906, and Mm -hmm. most of the British legation staff are away on summer holiday. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they're, they're gone. They're gone. And the secretary of the British legation told the protesters that although he wished they would fuck off and find another place (laughs) to hide out, he would not, quote, in view of the acknowledged custom in Persia and the immemorial right of bast use, which is basically uh, bast is like, you know, um, sanctuary, um, or he would not uh, cause, use force to expel them if they came. Mm -hmm. Now... There's a lot going on here. Um, The British seem to be sensing at this point that the Shah is about to topple. Now, uh, there's there's just this public discontent that's going on. And whilst the British have had a good run with being able to manipulate Mm -hmm. the last couple of Shahs, they are smart enough to know that they need to be on friendly terms with whatever comes next. Right, slow your roll. So they uh, are supporting this protest movement by allowing them to stay in their, in their, uh, you know, basically their embassy, and they're saying, "Hey, listen, you know, the the immemorial rights of sanctuary uh, under Islam, bust, you know, yeah, we can't, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't blame us. We're just, you know." Obeying your Going by your traditions, culture. your exactly. culture. Exactly. Yeah. Before long, there were 14,000 Iranians <laughs> inside the British compound. Jesus Christ, right? That's uh, a lot. Living in tents, uh, according to their guilds, people mm-hmm. are bringing in cauldrons of food in this massive kitchen. There are cobblers, mm. uh, walnut vendors, porcelain menders, everyone, you know, just clerics. It was like a settlement. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was like this massive protest movement, everyone coming in. It was a bit like um, what was uh, <coughs> what was the one in Wall Street in uh, 2011? Oh, the, yeah. yeah, I know what you're talking about. Shit. The 99 percenters uh, versus the one percenters. Yeah, oh, my God, I'm looking right at it. We own Wall Street or whatever it was called. Um, Something like that. Bit like yeah. that, this massive protest that just became this village, a little village that set yeah. up. Apparently, the atmosphere was joyous. Um, I've right. seen photographs, there are photographs out there of this whole thing, if they exist. Kind of a massive, massive thing. And um, there were sermons, there were speeches talking about the evils of tyranny, the benefits right. of, a, of a constitution, power to the people. And it was mostly driven by merchants, the, the lower middle class, the petite bourgeoisie. 
Now, right. anyone who's studied revolutions knows that they're the people you've got to be careful of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Don't piss them off. Don't give them a reason to organize. You've got the nobility, then you've got the yeah. elite below them, the bourgeoisie right. that are the rich. Then you've got the lower middle class who aren't poor. They've got some level right. of education. They've got some level of financial, you know, uh, wherewithal. Mm -hmm. But they're yeah. not rich. And they look at the rich people and go, well, you're rich. Why can't we be rich too? Right. You're keeping you're all the good out. shit for yourself. Exactly. They're normally exactly. not driving a revolution for the lower classes. They're driving right. it because they want to get a bigger taste of the pie Hell that yeah. the upper classes yeah. Have it's your petite bourgeoisie that you know uh, quite Watch often this, this happened in the French Revolution. You look at the French Revolution, the people that are driving yeah. the French Revolution are mostly lawyers and uh, you know bankers and guilds, the, the business operators yeah. who are going, you know what, fuck you. Why are you getting <laughs> more money than I'm yeah. getting? I'm you're no better than me. Yeah, well, just because you're you were born, born into it. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I have the shop seven too. days a week for twenty years, and my and I'll die in the shop. Fuck you. Yeah. So yeah. Don't so piss them off. you've got the petite bourgeoisie that are driving this thing in line with the clerics. Uh, they got the support of the lower classes and the British diplomats, and right. you know, there's not much that the British diplomats could really do against fourteen thousand people without you know sending in an army. I Major. guess really exactly. Yeah. And this is, but as I said, the British are sort of sensing the the tidal wave here. They've been through their Changing own me. Magna Carta, yes. their own thing. They've seen what happened in the US. Uh, they've seen what's happened in France. You know, there's enough revolutions yeah. have gone on now where you, you can start to get a sense you for it, a taste it. for it, yeah. and figure out yeah. you're better off being on the other side of it. You know, being you, yeah. you want to be in good terms with the incumbent, uh, the incoming. Sorry. Uh, right. Government, not yeah. the incumbents, if their time is slipping. Right. So they demand a majlis, a parliament, majlis as it's known in Iran, with mm -hmm. true power, not just an advisory council right. like the Ab yeah. Aboriginals are trying to exactly. get in Australia right now and a lot of people are right. uh, unhappy about, but yeah. a real parliament with real power. The law must be what the majlis decides, they declared in a statement. Nobody is to interfere in the laws of the majlis. Damn. The Shah Muzavar finally gives in and agrees with the proviso that laws passed by the majlis would require his signature before taking effect, basically royal assent. Right. It's still a big step, though. It's still a major – I mean, the fact that they're getting this parliament is still a major victory from these people who went from being 100% ruled by the Shah and religious groups. This is huge. But this has been a long time coming as well. A long time coming, as revolutions always are. Right. One British diplomat cabled – to London saying, one remarkable feature of this revolution here, for it is surely worthy to be called a revolution, is that the priesthood have found themselves on the side of progress and freedom. This, right. I should think, is almost unexampled in the world's history. If the reforms which the people, with their help, have fought for become a reality, all their power will be gone. Hmm. So when I think most people in the West think of Iran today, 
We right. think of, of the religious theocracy as being backwards against progress, right. trying Repressive. to keep women un- uneducated, wearing a hijab, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but at this point in time, 120-odd years ago, yeah. the, the priesthood, the Islamic scholars and clerics in Iran were actually on the side of progress, which was threatening their own power yes. and control over yes. the people, not just that of the Shah. Exactly. And because everybody does things for self-motivated reasons, and the, the clerics can see that if Britain keeps having more and more control, how can that not bite the clerics in the ass? And so they are on the side of progress in this instance, which again is another indication of how badly the British are disliked in the country at this point. Well, I mean, the British disliked, but they also, you, you know, supported this uh, 14,000 right. well, protesters it's best, as it's, well. It's best to be on top of the wave riding it than getting run exactly. over by it. So, and, and, I, and I won't jump too far, but I just want to say at this point in 1906, uh, Mustafar is sick. He's dying. His son, Muhammad Ali, is about to come to the throne. And Ali has made it quite clear that he is not a fan of the parliament and the people who have finally gotten to this point do not want to have to go through all this again. So they move probably faster than they intended to. The constitution is not perfect, but they do get it adopted on December 30th, 1906. It is now to whatever degree, a representative government versus the Shah. So again, incredible advancement has been made, but the British, the Russians and everyone else, they're still around as well. So this is, you know, a decade before the Russian Revolution happens. Yep. The Iranians are ahead of the Russians on this. And it also happens two years before the discovery of oil in the country. And, of course, that would change everything about yes. the destiny of the Iranian people. Yes. But we will get into that next time. Descended across the continent.